Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke chapter 4, part 2 is where we're at today. Uh, We'll pick up at verse 16 where we left off last week. And then when we're done today, we'll pick up where we leave off today next week. Um, Context for Luke, chapters 1 and 2 were the the introduction of John the Baptist and Jesus. They're both born. Chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized. God declares him his son. Luke shows that he's God's son through the genealogy. And Jesus identifies with humanity in baptism. And that's what he's doing. It's not that baptism saves you or cleanses your sins. It is simply a symbol and an image. And Jesus goes through that because he's asking us to do it. So he lives a life that we can follow and that we should follow. He, he lives a pattern so that we can see what a perfect human life looks like. And baptism's part of that play. It's a commitment to the Lord. Chapter 4 We see him follow into temptation, again, identifying with humanity, but he has a successful spirit-filled ministry that gets him through the temptation and gets him into his ministry. And no issues in that sense in that Jesus absolutely uses the word of God, the tools that we have to conquer temptation. And then in verse 15, it says he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's really the heart of what Luke's trying to say here. The ministry of Jesus was about teaching. It was primarily about, and, and I think sometimes we miss that because we see all the highlights in the Gospels, but those highlights were over three years of ministry. And so when you see a verse like verse 15, he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all, you get a sense of what happened for three years before the cross, is that he was out going into synagogues, teaching the Bible, showing them that, and today Jesus is going to pick a fight. Everything's been going great so far. Nobody's been upset with Jesus. He heals people. He's nice to people. He pats people on the head and sends sends them along to have a good day. But today he's going to pick a fight. And this is where all of the Gospels start to highlight this journey between Jesus' ministry of love and grace and his ministry of this idea of that there is sin and there is judgment and there is consequences coming. And that he's the Messiah. This is really what sets them off. We are in verse 16, and Jesus speaks some truth here. So he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown. He's a carpenter in this town, so was his dad. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So Luke makes a point of his custom. In other words, Jesus went to synagogue. It was his custom. It was how he lived. And I, and I don't want to miss this. I want to take note of this. Jesus is God. He doesn't need Sabbath. He didn't need a baptism. He didn't need to go do temptation with Satan. But he does. He does it anyway. There's this model of it. He still keeps the custom of fellowship with other believers on the Sabbath. God Almighty keeps the Sabbath. And I think this is an interesting, it's an implication that Jesus did this regularly and consistently. It also fulfills the law. The law says to keep the Sabbath. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Frankly, this is an odd thing for a lot of believers. We misunderstand that there's work that we do for ourselves to make money, to earn income, projects around the house. This is not just labor you do for other people. Most people were self-employed when this was written. 
but it says that there's your work, and then on the Sabbath day, there's God's work. And the, and the difference between those two things is like how we frame our life. So when Jesus keeps this custom to go to the Sabbath, it's to do the work of God's at least one day out of every week. And the work of God is go to the Sabbath, read the Bible, fellowship with other believers, baptize Dan and Sam. I mean, that's the work of what we do on Sundays. It's not that you sit around and lay in a bed all day and look at a ceiling. That was never the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to serve and minister, take one day out of seven, and just give it to other people in the body. In fact, it's kind of like a wave offering. We sacrifice our time and our energy on a Sunday to give it to God, but then like a wave offering, he gives it right back to us. He says, no, 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 I just want to bless you guys on the Sabbath. You're going to walk away from Sabbath having been with other people that are trying to serve God. You're going to be blessed by some worship music. You're going to be blessed by the worship of studying God's word. You're going to be blessed by the worship of feasting together. And Leviticus outlines all these forms of worship. That's what Sabbath is about. The fact that Jesus kept that keeps the law. The law gets repeated, by the way. Sabbath is a big deal in the Old Testament. Exodus 16, 20, 31, 35, Leviticus 16, 23, 25. It's in Numbers. It's in Deuteronomies. Keep the Sabbath is all over the place. What happens if you don't keep the Sabbath? Well, if we don't keep the Sabbath, we just because we got our things we got to do, we got our work that we want to work on today. If we don't keep the Sabbath, we think nothing of it. And I think this is dangerous because God seems to hold the Sabbath up here. And we hold the Sabbath like as just like a thing that we get to choose to do. But in Exodus 31, 14, everyone who profanes or doesn't keep the fat Sabbath shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, work of your own, according to the law, that a person shall be cut off amongst his people. The primary consequence of not keeping the Sabbath is you're not hanging out with the brothers and sisters in the faith. You're missing out. And I kind of feel sorry for that. Like, missing out on the Sabbath is kind of a big thing. And we think of it as just kind of an optional deal. But the, really the problem here is to miss the weekly connection with other believers and to miss what God's work is doing, you miss out on what God's and how you can be part of God's plan. And again, coming from, a, you know, as I'm a teacher, like it sounds like this recruitment thing for Sundays. But honestly, I just talked with a brother today and he's like, I, I'm going to this other church. And I'm like, God bless you. It's not about which church you go to. It's that you hook in and you connect in with other believers. So Jesus is going to his hometown and he's up teaching the Bible and with his hometown. And, and this is how Jewish synagogues were set up. When it says stand up to read, what would happen is they would do a reading of the word and the scrolls were really expensive, really valuable. Most synagogues in the first century didn't have the complete Old Testament. So I love how Jonathan was praying about, like, we have the whole Bible in front of us. What a privilege. Most of these synagogues had the Torah, maybe the Psalms, and maybe one or two other prophets. Maybe. Because these were really expensive. If you went to bigger towns like Jerusalem, they probably had, they had the whole Torah in the temple. Um, but this idea of standing up to read, they would stand up to read the scripture, and then they would sit down to teach. And they kept a distinct line, and the physical motion of standing to sitting separated God's word from the word of the rabbi. In other words, the opinions of the rabbi meant nothing. The teaching of the word was, was prioritized. So they would do this thing, and the order of service in a Jewish synagogue is they would pray together, they would sing some praise songs together, they would then do the reading of the law, or they would stand to read, and then they would do a reading of the prophets, and then they would sit, and there would be a sermon and a teaching that would come after it. So that's the context of what Jesus is doing here. So he was handed the book of uh, the prophet Isaiah, 
So they're getting to that fourth section of the teaching where they read the prophets. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So that he found the place. This is important. Jesus selected this passage. There's a, Isaiah's a big scroll. He looked through the scroll and he found this spot because now it's time to pick a fight. And here's, here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus just, what's interesting is acceptable year of the Lord. He actually, if you look at the passage in Isaiah um, 61 two, he stops mid-sentence. He doesn't finish the sentence. This is interesting. Makes me wonder what the rest of the sentence was. But this gap where he stops is a curious spot because the rest of the sentence is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance for our God. Like he just stops. He doesn't, because this isn't, he's not coming for vengeance. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, when you read about Messiah, like this passage in, in Isaiah, Messiah has both caring for the poor and mercy and salvation. And there's this idea of vengeance and judgment. And what the people didn't know is that those messianic references were because there was going to be two comings of Messiah. Same Messiah, two visits. The first visit was to provide salvation, which is where Jesus is doing in this passage. The second visit will be judgment, which he'll talk about later on. But he stops mid-sentence in Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied, I mean, this whole chapter is about the good news that's coming, that Messiah would bring it. When it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, uh, interestingly enough, when you put Jesus in for the me, you've got all three elements of the, of the Trinity there. You've got the Spirit, you've got the Lord, Yahweh, and then me, which in the Old Testament is nameless. We didn't know the name of the Messiah. But as Jesus reads it, and he's reading me there, he's filling in his own name for that me. And he'll make that clear when he gets to his sermon. But the speaker in Isaiah is the Messiah for this entire chapter. It's Messiah talking. So Jesus reads this, it says he's anointed me. We just saw an anointing of the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Luke made sure we saw that. To preach the gospel, we've seen him go out and do that. Interestingly enough, the good news or the good tidings, that's not just a New Testament word. The Old Testament predicted that the, that the Messiah would teach or bring the good news. And we use that term all that we use the gospels and we think of it as a New Testament word. It's an Old Testament word too. So Messiah is going to come. The rest of the chapter, he's going to heal the damages of sin. He's going to fix poverty, broken hearts, captivity, oppression. And then um, Jesus adds a line. I love when you, get, when you look at the passage that he's citing. Not only did he stop that sentence halfway through, which is a 2,000-year gap that he creates, um, but then he adds a line. And here's the line he adds. And recovery of sight to the blind. It's not in Isaiah. He just adds that. So it's interesting that Jesus puts something in there. Now, we're not supposed to add to the Word of God or take away from the Word of God, but God can add to the Word of God or take away from the Word of God. Now, this, for the, the fuddy-duddies in the room, the, the scholars in the room, they're recognizing just Jesus just added a line to Isaiah. That alone would get them upset. But in adding a line to Isaiah and teaching with authority and claiming that he's Messiah, Jesus is making the claim he has the right to add something. So re recovering the sight of the blind, we should note that these scrolls were things that not everybody had access to. Most of the people in the room probably missed that. 
Um, but it was enough to where people remembered it to where when Luke went to do the interviews, the people in Nazareth remembered this moment and they convey it to Luke. Um, so we, we have this idea. Nazareth is going to have Isaiah as a scroll. That would have been for a small town like, like Nazareth. They would have either borrowed this scroll from another synagogue or it would be their pride and joy to have this scroll in a small synagogue like Nazareth. So they have this here and he's reading it. Verse 19 says, to proclaim, the next line is the vengeance part, and Jesus is clearly making this thing. So I want to go to Isaiah 61. I, I think it's word, worth just reading it so you can know the whole reference. It's likely that Jesus went through the chapter or went through this passage. Um, Luke just gives us the introduction to the chapter in, in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 11. And the rest of this chapter, man... It's just amazing that it predicts the role of Messiah through the end of days. And Jesus just reads, or the passage Luke gives us, just reads the part of Jesus' ministry, and it kind of stops before the vengeance. But you got the vengeance piece. And then the rest is about the fruit of this ministry of Messiah, or Jesus. There's going to be this church of Gentiles. There's going to be righteousness springing up from individuals. This is crazy stuff. So... Um, and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. Remember that Jesus tells the parable of the seeds, right? And, he's, and, and I think that's somehow he's connected to Isaiah, what he's talking about. Messiah is going to plant something. What's he here to plant? They show, and they, these, these seeds that are going to grow up because of Messiah, they're going to rebuild the old ruins. They're going to raise up the former desolations. They'll repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. The sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Remember Jesus tells a parable of the vine dressers? You know, he's not getting these ideas out of the cloud. He, he wrote them down before he even came. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. We're going to be a holy priesthood. They shall call you the servants of our God, and you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and their glory in their glory you shall boast. Like non-Jews are going to get the good news. Messiah is going to raise up this new priesthood. Gentiles are going to be involved. And then instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall re rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double everlasting joy shall be theirs. These Gentiles, they're going to get together in basements and study the word and praise God, and their blessing is going to be double what the Jewish people have gotten. The, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth. Like the God's going to direct these Gentiles on his own in how to behave, and you will make with them an everlasting covenant. This is the last covenant. This is the one that's going to go forever. So this is the permanent arrangement that, that Messiah is going to bring about. Their descendants, verse 9 in Isaiah, their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. And all who, who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity of the Lord has blessed. They're going to see these, well, we don't know the name Christian yet. They're going to see these seeds and people are going to look at them and say, surely God's blessing these people. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. Remember Jesus told the parable of the bride, the bridegroom? As a bride adorns himself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its bud and the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That's the good news. And Jesus teaches just the intro of this chapter to the people. And the rest of the story hasn't been fully fulfilled yet, but those first few verses are fulfilled in Jesus showing up. That's the beginning of this new era, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is where it starts. So we got this image. The year of the Lord in the Old Testament is probably a mirror, at least an allusion to, the, the year of Jubilee, this special year that God had where everybody gets a break. Even the land, they're not supposed to farm on the year of Jubilee. Even the land gets a break. Everybody just takes a Sabbath for a year. And the farmers are supposed to like save some of their crop to feed people, but debts get relieved. Anybody who's in debt on the year of Jubilee, all debts are forgiven. And so Jesus is using this acceptable year of the Lord image as this, and it's going to fit with exactly what he's going to teach in the book of Luke. All sins are forgiven. All things are done. All debt is gone. Everybody gets a break from what this world has to offer acceptable year of the Lord, Messiah is going to open the floodgates of heaven's blessings on the people, and it won't just be Jews. It's going to be, thank God, it's going to be all of us. That's salvation, righteousness, and a natural springing up of things. To the first century Jews, reading this chapter in Isaiah is going to feel like it does to us to read Revelation. Like they... It was all prophecy to them. They're like, I don't know what this is going to look like. What do you mean Gentiles are going to bear fruit? What, it seems like this weird science fiction thing to them, right? And when we read like Revelation as a prophecy, what hasn't happened yet, we can be just as assured that it's going to happen exactly as it says, but that we don't know where the metaphors are and where, they're, where it's literal. And that's prophecy. And not everything's revealed until it happens, but when it happens, the glory of God gets revealed. Like, wow, God said everything and we just missed it. And this is, he's reading Isaiah to them, and they're like, oh, he's reading prophecy. And people get excited about prophecy in the church today. Like, we go to prophecy conferences, we dig it so much, right? I want to know what God's saying for tomorrow. And so when he opens up Isaiah, you could probably feel this tension and excitement in the room at the, oh, we're reading Isaiah today, and he's going to teach what that means. How he interprets this passage can be fascinating to people who love the Lord. It's going to be highly offensive to people that don't like what he says. So in verse 20, then he closed the book. You say the book, Sean, you said it was a scroll. Most synagogues had scrolls. This is a really interesting word to throw in here. It's not the word for scroll. It's the word for book. The Greeks were starting to to develop a binding system where you'd take those sheets of of paper and put them into a, a form that we currently call a book. So that means Nazareth had a hold of a really new cutting-edge thing. They were probably definitely proud of this book. They probably and definitely couldn't afford this book. So it was probably on loan. Unless Nazareth had some big donor, but, you know, what good thing comes from Nazareth, right? These people are, but they, he closed a book. He actually had one of these brand new things, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. I love that line. I'm thinking Jesus just waited. 
Like he just read this highly fantastical passage from Isaiah and then he just sits down. Sitting down doesn't mean he like joined the audience. It means he's sitting in the seat and in the, at this, the tabernacle there was a seat where the teacher would sit. So he's sitting down to teach. Amazing, you'd have people sit down to teach, right? I guess you guys are used to it. Uh, I kind of missed the self-awareness there for a second. Um, Matthew 4 notes that he had been out healing and doing ministry at this point. When he does this Nazareth thing, everybody knows he's out healing people. He's been teaching in synagogues, as Luke said. They all know Jesus is something special. There's an excitement here. And now he just read that passage and he added the line about healing the blind, which he had probably already done, right? Which would be very self-referential. So the, the, to re, the order of events here is that they're expecting a sermon. When he sits down, they're expecting for him to talk. And every eye, in the eyes of all who are in the synagogue, were fixed on him. There's silence. What's he going to say? What do you say to that? Like, oh my goodness, what he just read, he's been doing everywhere. He just read the passage of, of the Messiah, and, he, and it actually fits him really, really well. People were already talking, maybe he's the Messiah, but he hasn't said it yet. They're all fixed on him. He sits in his seat. He's ready to go. And then he began to say to them, and I love this, the shortest sermon ever, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It just, I, I, there had to be power that went with that line, right? Messiah God just announced, I'm that guy. You just heard it. It says he began in verse 21. There's likely a longer sermon that goes with it. Luke just gives us that. I think for a lot of people, that's all they remembered, right? Is he dropped that. And then he just talked for an hour. But that's the thing, like, oh my goodness, today the scripture is fulfilled. Not, here's the prophecy and here's what I think it's going to look like. It just happened. You just heard it. And, they, and then verse 22, so all bore witness to him. In other words, Luke's citing his source here. He could go to Nazareth. Everybody in Nazareth remembers this moment. They all do. Like, this was big. And they marveled at such gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So that he began in verse 21 and the gracious words in verse 22. There was a sermon that went with this. And it was a great sermon. And he said, I'm here. And you think back at what he read. I'm here to bring good news to the poor. Guess what Nazareth was? They were broke. This is a poor, this is a lot of poor people. I'm here to bless people and give you good news. And you know what? I'm giving you good news here in Nazareth. I'm preaching you the good news. He's here to heal the brokenhearted. Were there brokenhearted people in the room? There's always brokenhearted people in the room. Because that's what we humans do to each other. We break hearts. To proclaim liberty to captives. Were there people enslaved to debt in that room? Yeah, because that's what we humans do to each other. There's always enslaved people in the room. And then I want to give sight to the blind. I want to help you see things you haven't seen before. Were there blind people in the room? Yeah. There's always blind people in the room. It's what we humans do. So they're fixed on him. They understand it. And then they are going, isn't this Joseph son? How can this be Messiah? This, we know this guy. I think this is amazing that they're so, Jesus was so common that he was sitting in the room with you and you're like, that's the carpenter of the Todd's Joseph's son. 
And there's nothing special about him when you meet him. People often don't get this when they're new believers. They're like, I just want something different in my life, and you guys all have it. And then they show up, and they come to a Bible study, and sing some songs, and they're like, there's nothing special here. It's so normal. There's nothing amazing here. There's no lightning bolts coming out of ears. There's no little sparkles that happen. Nobody has a halo in the room. How can this possibly be a work of God? And you're like, man, you got to just judge it by the fruits. Here's people that love each other and they're happy. That's it. What more do you want? You got a world that brings strife, anxiety, enslavement, blindness, and nastiness, and corruption and filth. And then you got decent, good people that sing songs together and baptize in their neighbor's swimming pools. Like, this is like, choose. Make a choice between those kingdoms. There's a kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of slavery. So, hey, backwater Nazareth, you just became part of the Messiah story. You just got elevated to the word of God that we're reading now 2,000 years later. If it wasn't for the Bible, nobody would, in this room would even have heard of Nazareth. We wouldn't even know the word. But Jesus elevates them and gives them this honor. God loves you. God's blessed you. And these words come out of his mouth that just feed them this joy. But they can't get past his normalcy. They're expecting Alexander the Great. They're expecting the Caesar with purple robes. And they see this carpenter's son. How can that possibly be a thing of God? And this is the answer we've gotten for 2,000 years. God uses the things of this world that are lowly to do his work. He doesn't need the glory of humanity. He doesn't need titles. He doesn't need attention. He doesn't need fancy clothing. He'll use anybody in this room to do his work if you have a heart that wants to serve, period. Nothing fancy about it. Nothing glorious about it. Jesus is just too darn normal for some people. And I think Christianity is the same today. Christianity and the practice of Christianity is just too darn normal for some people. So they want the party. They want the strobe lights. They want the dance club with little bubbles floating in the air. They want pageantry. And the Egyptians wanted pageantry. And the Romans want pageantry. That's, the, that's pagan worship. God simply, we come to in the simplicity and humility and the humanity of it all, and we give our hearts to God. Nothing fancy. No pageantry. Verse 23, he says to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. We heard, they've heard about all these miracles Jesus does. Jesus comes to Nazareth, Nazareth and gives them the greatest gift. They're the ones that get the announcement of Messiah. But what they want is miracles. They want healings. They want stuff. Because that's what humans do to each other. We just demand of each other all the time. More of this, more of that. Help me with this. Do that. They want Jesus to prove it, even though he had just told them and they just heard it. So do also here. Do the things that we hear you doing in other places. There's a presumption in this question. The Nazarenes, they feel like Jesus owes it to them. Like, we demand that you do miracles here. This is almost like Satan's temptation, right? Satan said, hey, feed yourself. If you're the son of God, then do this miracle in front of me. It's interesting. I think we're going to walk through these stories and we're going to see each of Satan's temptations redone through humanity. And then what they're doing is, if you're really the Messiah, then do also hear what you've done in Capernaum. Show us. And Jesus, I'm sure he's just, there's just this sigh from God because he's like, oh, you humans, you're the same as Satan. Feed yourself, make this happen. But then in verse 24, this is really gracious. 
Then he says, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in their own country. I don't, I'm not going to be accepted by you guys. How sad is that, right? There's Messiah. They don't even get the blessing that's right in front of them. Jesus has no ambition to please his audience. I frankly love this. He's not there to make people happy. He's there to give people truth. And I think as, as believers, as Americans, as Minnesotans, we often want to always make the person across from us happy. We always want to leave people pleased. And sometimes that will then put a demand on us. That desire to please will make us performers. Jesus never becomes a performer here. So as with anyone that teaches the word, anyone that teaches God's word and God's will typically will have this temptation to try to please people or prove things to people. And resisting that is to not have that unction and just say, I don't, I'm not going to be accepted by you, apparently. And Jesus just lays that out. They reject him. It's more about their heart than about Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to prove anything to be son of God. They need to prove something to be followers of God. It's on humanity to make a choice. So this is why the baptism, the calling, the wilderness are so important in the book of Luke. That Jesus went through all those things. He proved himself to God Almighty in the baptism. He proved himself to himself in the resisting of temptations. He doesn't need to prove anything to the people he ministers to. He just He's there to love and serve, and if they don't receive it, that's their problem. And we're going to see that in Jesus' ministry. It's also, you know reflective where he says no prophets accepted in his own country. We're talking about a national position or a region of the world. It's kind of reflective of Satan's temptation that he could have all nations if he wanted them. And now he resisted Satan, but they're all just like, if you do this, what you did in Capernaum and prove it to us, well, you'll have our hearts. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to, I don't want your hearts that way. That's not the path. So it's very similar to him resisting Satan. He's not going to do what he's asked to do. He's going to do what God tells him to do. And sometimes that means healings. Sometimes it means miracles. Sometimes it doesn't. Now, this is an interesting point. God's going to bless who he pleases to bless. And I like that. God's going to choose who he blesses and who he doesn't. And he says in verse 25, But I tell you truly, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine through the land. There were a lot of widows that died during the time of Elijah. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There's only one person that God saved in that famine, and she was a Gentile. God's going to save who he's going to save. And then he gives a second example. And many leopards were in Israel at the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. Hey, there's a lot of Jewish lepers that died in their, in their leprosy. God didn't save them. Now, these are kind of fighting words. Because not only does he says, I'm not going to be accepted here, but then he goes on to say, God's going to save who he pleases, and it's not you. I'm going to walk out of this town and you guys are not going to see these healings because you presumed that they were owed to you. How arrogant. How arrogant for such a little backwater town too, right? The pride that had to be there. The pride that all humans carry. So you got a Jewish widow. You got Naaman the Syrian. The idea with both of those, they were both asked to do something and they both obeyed. 
And so the widow actually like gave the last of her food to Elijah and then she was blessed by not running out. Naaman was asked to go wash in the river. Remember this? And at first he was prideful about it. He said, I'm not going to wash in some stupid river. Why would I do something symbolic for God that I know won't heal my leprosy? And he does what's symbolic. I think this is great for a baptism thing. He does the symbolic thing because his servant says, hey, what does it hurt? Just do what God tells you to do. What's, how does that hurt you? So Naaman throws his pride to the side, gets in the water, and washes himself, and does what he's told, and the leprosy falls. God saves him. The leprosy's gone. It's not the washing that healed the leprosy. It was the obedience that healed the leprosy. So Jesus gives these two examples. An image of sin in the Old Testament of leprosy. Don't ask, just humble yourself. Don't, if you don't repent, you're going to die and rot. But if you repent, God may heal you. He may take that all away. And he just got done preaching Isaiah where he's going to free the, he's going to give liberty to the prisoners. So he gives these two examples that basically say God doesn't save anybody. He saves who he pleases. So before we get to the wrath part in verse 28, let's review. Jesus reads them the Bible. He speaks gracefully to them. They ignore both and they want proof on top of all these other witnesses they've heard from. And then four, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. What has Jesus done wrong here? Right? So they get, they get mad about this, verse 28. But Jesus hasn't actually done anything to them. And this, I think, is fascinating. What evil does is it concocts a wrong that's been done. And that invented wrong becomes justification for evil itself. But Jesus hasn't wronged Nazareth anyway. All he's done is refuse to bless them. But he's calm. He taught in their synagogue. Their normal rabbi had the day off, got a break. Jesus actually blessed them with good news and tidings. He's honored them by making his announcement here. And then he says, they say, we want a bunch of miracles. And he says, no, thanks. Shouldn't he just, they just say, well, hey, thanks for teaching this week. And thanks for the gracious words. We marveled at everything you said. What a blessing. Jesus, we know you. We love you. Have a great time. That would have been godly. But nope. Verse 28. All those people in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They've gone from amazement to wrath in a heartbeat because they didn't get what they wanted. And rose up. And they thrust him out of the city. That implies strong physical contact. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over a cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, he went away. This is so there's this. What's here's curious. He act, they actually get a miracle, but the miracle is they can't see. Right? So most people, he gives sight. The line he added to Isaiah, he's going to give sight to the blind. But with Nazareth, he blinds their sight so he can walk away. So maybe he knew this was coming when he started teaching. Maybe he put the blindness line in there for that reason. But God's blessed all of you people. God loves all the Gentiles. No, I won't do tricks for you. Let's run them out of town. That's how this goes. One of evil's greatest weapons in my heart is self-importance. Thinking God owes me something that he doesn't owe me. Thinking that I should deserve more than what he's already given. That's a, a seed that gets planted that can really do some destruction. And this is an entire town just not getting a blessing from the Lord. When it says they want to throw him down in verse 29, this is the method by which in the first century they would stone somebody. 
you'd find a cliff, tons of rocks are around because it's a cliff, you'd throw them down so that they couldn't get up, and then when you threw the rocks, you weren't trying to aim straight across, you were aiming down, which is a lot easier to hit them with. They were going to stone him. And they're going to stone him because he's claiming to be Messiah, maybe, but that's not what it says. They're, they're mad because he won't do tricks for them. You ever meet people like that? I just don't serve God because he doesn't do what anything for me. I don't get the tricks that I want out of God, so I'm not going to follow. Okay, well, that's arrogant. You know, I guess you have an image of God that he's your puppet. So it's reflective too. It's, they want to throw him down. Remember in the temptations, Satan said, throw yourself off of this spot. Very reflective of that image. So Satan wants him to throw himself off the spot. And if these people threw him off, it's only because Jesus allows them to. So here's another opportunity to be thrown down and then God would save him from a stoning. That'd be miraculous too. But instead, the much more passive miracle. He passes through the midst of them. And I, I always laugh when like Hollywood people try to portray, portray this in stories of Jesus or movies with Jesus because they'll do it in various different ways. You know, does he turn translucent? Does he kind of go, you know, Assassin's Creed and pull the hood up and everybody just misses? Like, how do you how do you do this? Like, what does it look like visually? It's At any level, verse 30 is this kind of miracle that he just goes on, he just leaves them, he just walks away. So Jesus then, right up after this, we get this unclean spirit story. I, I do think these stories Luke has set up in order um, for a reason. We should note that the first time Jesus speaks the word of God, people are amazed by it. We should also note that the second time that he speaks, that he's not going to do tricks for them, they're wrathful towards him. So we have two different responses to Jesus so far in this chapter. Amazement and wrath. And then in verse 31, we get another response to Jesus. Then he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. So this is next Sunday. Time has passed. He goes into the synagogue. He's teaching the word again. And they were astonished at his teaching. Same start. For his word was with authority. This looks a lot like Nazareth so far. Um, the authority that he has is just this, he's confident with what he's saying. What I think is interesting is when we read the Bible today and God opens our eyes to it, we read the Bible with this, the Holy Spirit inspired clarity of what it says that they had, that they were amazed by because they didn't have the Holy Spirit when they heard the word. It was a lot like when you're five and you go to church and the pastor's just doing the Charlie Brown thing. It all just kind of goes through one ear and out the other. But they're amazed by Jesus because when he teaches it, he knows what it, it means. And it's not that he's heard Rabbi 72's interpretation and he's conveying that. He's actually speaking from what he reads. So now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, I read it with a nasty voice, but you could read that with a nice voice too. Like, he gives Jesus all the right titles, right? So the New Testament presents a period where Satan and unclean spirits seem to be like there's one in every town almost when you read the Gospels. Like, there's just somebody that disrupts God's work everywhere Jesus goes. And he comes into the synagogue, and the synagogue then, I want to point out, the demon has made their way into the synagogue. There's no magic barriers. We can't do salt on the ground and keep demons out, right? So the demon is actually in the synagogue. What's the demon doing in a synagogue where the word of God's getting read every week? Why is a demon even there? 
And I would argue this. They're there to disrupt, distract, and annoy people. If demons can do their job, I think demons like this guy simply bug everybody. And they give people an excuse to not do Sabbath. Because I just don't want to deal with so-and-so this week. Right? Have you met people like this in the church? They're annoying. And they don't grow and they don't change and there's no humility. They're often the person that corners you in the back with some whacked out theory and they won't let you get away from them. Right? I want to point out that the spirit is unclean. I would say unclean in this context is still referring to the laws of Leviticus. There was to be clean and there was to be unclean and it was ceremonial uncleanness. So they weren't following the word. They're coming to Sabbath and they haven't done their seven days. They haven't taken their time away. They haven't washed appropriately. So they're coming to the wedding and they're not wearing the wedding garb. And they're not clean in that sense. And that spirit of evil can't submit to God in the little things, but they're happy to come to service and disrupt the big things. They're happy to, but their life isn't marked by a life of cleanliness or following God's law. And then they cry out. Here's another indication of an evil spirit. They cry out with a loud voice. There's, the word cry out there is, to, is from the throat. It means literally it's not coming from the heart. It's coming from the throat. And there's this yelling that comes out. And people will interpret that as like funny voices. I think it's just that they're not thinking and they don't have a heart behind it. They're just making noise. And they just speak. And there's nothing productive there. It's reactive, emotive, unharnessed language. And then it conditions it with a loud voice. Literally in the Greek, that's megaphone. Loud voice, megaphone in the Greek. Evil loves attention. They love to be on display and they love people to pay attention to them. They love to make a scene. And I honestly think that a lot of us, when we first became believers, we first started coming to church, like there's this puffed up kind of attitude where I want to make sure everybody pays attention to me. I want everybody to see me. I want everybody to know that I'm here. And that loud voice is not like ceremonially clean for church, but it's something we as believers have grace with because we've all been there. We've all been like that at some point. But that gracefulness of just making a scene, yelling without reason, making sure everybody's here. At this point, we have a demonic presence. And what comes out of their mouth, even though it's, it, it could be interpreted as like accurate, it's the tone, that it, it's the loud voice, it's the uncleanness. It's just this, Satan knows the truth, but they just come at it with such a pride. So verse 33, it's a man. Verse 34, let us alone. It's interesting that a singular demon-possessed man presumes that he speaks for everybody. I've seen this so many times. When loud, annoying people want to get attention, they claim they speak for the group. We all think this. And this is how Satan, these are the tools of a demonically possessed person. We believe this. And then you, you as, a, as a person teaching, Jesus has to react to that. Well, I don't know if you represent everyone in the room. Let's start with that. You're a singular person saying that you do this. Another way to read let us alone is that we're talking about the man speaking in concert with the demon. That would be two, which is plural. So you could read it that way too. Either way, this is weird. A single man uses the plural, right? I've heard politicians do this, right? We think this and we think that. And even self-referential calling themselves in the plural that's a really interesting trait. Most people don't have that instinct. 
but I just heard it last night as I was listening to politicians. We are of the opinion that we would do this. Who's the we we're talking about here? Listen for that. We to do with you. What do we have to do with you? Jesus has followers at this point. In verse 32, he even has disciples. Evil isolates, right? We are all against you, individual. But Jesus is the one that has followers and people amazed with what he's teaching. Like the general tone of the room is, well, this is really good Bible teaching. So who are, where are the, these people that are so amazed with Jesus? Why don't they stand up to this guy? And I think that's because this is the effect of evil. And I'm guessing there was this presence in almost every synagogue that Jesus went into. He had to deal with this person that thought they spoke for everybody. They didn't put in the work. There wasn't fruit. They were ceremony unclean. And they're loud and they're annoying and they all have megaphones. And Jesus just has to shut them all up. Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think he's using that phrase in a complimentary way. What happened to Nazareth? He got ran out of town. And the demon's trying to think, I want you run out of Capernaum too. You're that same Jesus that they ran out of town in Nazareth. Did you come to destroy us? Honestly, the work of grace and healing is now being shouted down as destructive. You ever heard people call good evil and evil good? Like, we just want to love people, invite people, hang out with people, have barbecue with people. Oh, no, you guys are haters of men, is what the Romans told the Christians. Right? I saw a billboard on a street that said, um, God's love is hate. Right? And it's these little protest things. People go out and do it. That's such a, they're just calling good evil. And that's exactly what demons do. We see it here in the scriptures. Right? You just come to destroy us. Has Jesus, and when he read the Isaiah passage, does it say he came to destroy or bring good news and healing and liberty and love. What is he there to do? Make, make that sense. Even the wrath and judgment of Jesus is not simple destruction. It's not chaotic. The demon takes his own tendencies to create chaos and he ascribes it to Jesus. Surely Jesus must be like me. And this is, again, deep demonic behavior when human beings think Jesus is what we think Jesus is. And we ascribe intent and, and thought to God Almighty who has never said those things. Try to debate an atheist and see what they think about God. And it's getting worse. People are, oh, this guy, he's a horrible, mean, nasty people. He believes in genocide and all these. Just this filth comes out about God Almighty. And you're thinking, that's not true. That's not what the Bible actually says. And then he says, holy one of God. The enemy knows the truth. He, he knows what it is. But in this context, he is trying to elevate Jesus Christ to a point that the people aren't ready to hear. He hasn't been resurrected yet. And this is the same thing that Satan did in the wilderness. You will have dominion over all the nations of the earth. You'll be the mighty Holy One of God, but I'm going to give it to you. Jesus doesn't need a demon to ascribe him his worth. And, he, and the shouting of it, and it, it doesn't help the ministry. It, it, what it rather does is it probably starts gossip in Capernaum. They're all talking about the demon now instead of Christ. It creates a circus and a, and a realm of chaos in the room. And he shouts it out. Jesus rebukes him. <laughs> it's interesting how Jesus handles this. So here we have another reaction to Jesus. This reaction to Jesus to call Jesus evil. And to say he's a destroyer. But Jesus rebuked him saying, shut up. Actually, that was Minnesotan for be quiet. Come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, so that means the human gets kind of thrown to the ground, the demon takes off, and came out of him, it didn't hurt him. 
And then they were all amazed and spoke amongst themselves, saying, What word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Which gives you this indication that, that people were familiar with these folks all around them. They'd become accustomed to evil in every setting. And the report about him went out into every place and into the surrounding region. I want you to note, Jesus doesn't argue with the demon. He doesn't debate. He doesn't get into it. He doesn't correct the Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't say, I don't, the Holy One. He doesn't get into anything that the demon said. He gets into the heart of the matter, which is to get the demon out of the person. He doesn't hate the person. He hates the evil that was there and speaking on behalf of the person. And I think as Christians, we have a lot to learn from that. We never hate the person. We hate the evil that's coming out of the mouth of that person. We hate the actions that, that are being caused. So he says, be quiet. I, I, I think, you know, the part of the role of the holy people is to sometimes say to evil, shut up. I don't need to hear from you. I wish we had more city councils, school boards, and associations and committees and, 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 and boardrooms that would just tell these people to be quiet. Knock it off. We don't need to hear your opinion. It's not worth anything. You're, you're coming from a place where you're not respecting or revering God. You really don't have much to say in how we operate. Be quiet. Evil can't stand against a strong, godly person that says yes and no and, and means it. So in verse 33, this is all in the synagogue, and this guy's interrupting the teaching of the word, shouting out with his megaphone. Jesus uses his authority as the teacher to say, be quiet. We're trying to teach and study the word right now. Be quiet. Come out of that guy. Get out of here. And he kicks the demon out of the synagogue. Get lost. This is God's territory. This is sacred space. So what, what, is, what a word this is. In the first century, exorcisms were these big elaborate affairs. There were tons of human traditions built around them. Think Catholics and when you watch the movies, right? Exorcisms became these big fancy things and they're throwing holy water and, you know, doing hula hoops with their rosary beads and stuff like that. This wasn't that. He just says, shut up, get out. It's really easy, clear, direct authority. There's no tradition, no, no performance going on here, just raw authority of God. Knock it off. Shut up and leave. Right? And, and so how, did Jesus, how, did, how does the demonic respond to Jesus? They try to disrupt Jesus and off-rail his ministry the same way Satan tried to do in the wilderness. And, and Jesus doesn't need it. He has authority and power. He doesn't need that from this demon. Right? And the demon comes with praise. I want to point that out too. Oh, this is, you're the holy one of God. You're super amazing. But on the same thought, it's, but you've come to destroy all of us. So lies mixed in with truths right in there. Now in the synagogue, there's a man of an unclean spirit. And this is how Jesus responds to him. So we get to the next story, which is this mother-in-law getting healed. Now he arose from the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, verse 38. And they made a request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and served them. So Luke turns to the private now. It has been in the synagogue, but now we're in a private home. And Jesus has just lived with authority in the synagogue, but now he exercises authority in the private home too. One is the torture of loudness. The demonic torture of being homebound and sick is another evil that's on this earth. So how does this evil respond to Jesus? They can't because they're sick with a high fever. And it's not the person, it's the fever that's the problem. So Luke uses medical terms here. Sick, 
with a high fever would be medical terms that would be above the average speaking Aramaic Greek person in this time. He's a doctor. He's using doctor terms. It's a very specific state, what we would call sick with the flu. He's calling sick with a high fever. It's God's work in this healing too. So Jesus serves on the Sabbath. It is still Sabbath, but they're not in a synagogue. This is a really kind of cool indication. Jesus isn't doing his own work. He's doing the work for this for, for Peter's mom here. Uh, and it says Simon, I'm sorry. Simon's name gets changed to Peter later because Jesus says, I'm calling you Peter, which means rock. So Simon's wife, <laughs> just a side note, Peter's married. How the Christian church or community ever got to this idea that people in the ministry shouldn't be married? I mean, clearly there's Paul, there's Elijah, there's Jesus that don't get married. But then there's Peter who is married. Like seemingly, somehow or another, we got to think that the the church that Simon Peter helps to found becomes a place where like people in ministry shouldn't be married. That's silly. Um, Jesus, Simon Peter has a wife. He's a married guy. Uh, he's likely going there because Peter is married. You don't go to a single guy's house if you want hospitality. You go to a place where there's two adults helping with hospitality. Honestly, if I were a solo guy, you guys wouldn't have good lunches on a Sunday afternoon. So they're going to Sabbath, and then they're going to Peter's house because Peter has a wife. Not only that, in this, in this uh, era, and we forget this in America too, Simon's wife's mother is living with them. So there's multi-generational living. There wasn't this idea that you get married and you leave your parents. You know, there was an idea that you get married and you take responsibility for your household. But so not only does Peter have a wife, he has his wife's mom. And we all know grandma's cooking is even better. Right? So we just, this, and, you know, a mother-in-law living in the house, either she's great at taking care of people or Simon Peter's probably the only guy in the world that wants his mother-in-law living in his house. This shows Simon Peter is likely a guy of great patience. Even if she's a great mother-in-law, you're still dealing with a different family culture in your home. And Peter's got some things going. And he's a fisherman, too. This guy works with his hands. He's got Popeye arms because they were doing nets all day. I can't imagine how strong these dudes got. He was a big, burly dude because of his profession. And he still has his wife and his mom there. So when they say, hey, where are we going to eat for lunch today? Oh, let's go to Peter's house. Right? <laughs> He's got two people helping with things. So this gets in the way of the ministry when one of those two people has a high fever and they're sick, right? So how does, how does sometimes how do we respond to Jesus? Well, I can't get up because I'm too tired. I'm too sick. I'm too wore out. And there are times, not always, there's also biological illnesses. But in this particular case, verse 39, he stood over his mother-in-law and he rebuked the fever. Get out of her. Same thing he did with the person in the synagogue. Enough. And here's, the th here's why we know it's a miraculous spiritual thing. The spiritual layer is she immediately arose and started serving. I'm just like, this is like, you. I know this grandma, right? Like, I think we all do. She can't stop herself. Like, if she's moving, she's serving. And that's just who she is. Like, I don't know, there's a healing that goes on here and a strength. But the fact that she goes from unconscious to popping up and, oh, I have people in my house. I will get you drinks, right? And she's just like this perfect Minnesota grandma and living in the Middle East. But there's something in her heart that says, if there's people in my home, I want to help them and serve them. That's part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's part of what he's doing here. And the fact that she's laid up slows the ministry down. 
So he heals her, and the ministry goes forward. Everybody gets to eat in fellowship, and they're not worried about catching a flu because they realize God can heal that. What amazes me is I think this story speaks to our COVID years better than anything else. People not going to church because they were scared they were going to get something. And let's be realistic. I mean, we need to be practical around things like if we all had the bubonic plague and and I had a purple face and I was, you know, I would make sense you wouldn't want to come hug me, right? I get that. But this idea, this idea of fear trumping the work of God, absolute evil. And in this case, demonic, worthy of being rebuked. Nope. Eating together as a body of believers is more important than sickness. Jesus just takes care of the sickness, not stopping the worship of the saints, not stopping that from happening. Then you get to 40. (laughs) Hey, now it's just going to go everywhere. Verse 40, when the sun was setting, that's important because the Jews on Sabbath couldn't travel while it was Sabbath and the end of their day was sunset. So when sunset happens, all those who that had had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. And the demons came out of many crying out and saying, you're the Christ, the son of God. And he rebuking them didn't allow them to speak for they knew that he was the Christ. Amen. So you're the Christ, the son of God. Again, they're yelling something that's true, but it's how they're yelling it. It's a distraction from what he's trying to do. He's trying to bless people and they're putting glory on him. He's not asking for glory. He's asking to serve. And so there's this idea, this elation of a teacher takes away from the ministry of the word of God. This, you guys all know I'm super uncomfortable and you're like, that's such a good teaching. Because frankly, I, I, I always think, man, it could have been better. And there's a, a humility there, but elevating the speaker forgets that what made that so good was the word of God. It's not the speaker. Honestly, we've had guest speakers. I can hear the word of God from anybody that just reads it and teaches it, right? If you're faithful to what it says, the content itself is what my heart needs to hear. It doesn't matter who delivers it. So you, you deal with me saying, um, and lisping and scratching my nose and you put up with all that humanity because the word that's being taught is worth hearing. Does that make sense? So you got Jesus Christ himself teaching and doing ministry and doing service and these demons just try to put all the attention on him and he's trying to show and model for us how we point that attention to God. And there's a humility to Jesus and how he acts because he's showing us what that looks like. He's not doing anything that we can't do. The same spirit that's in Christ is the one he said would be in us. And so we move forward in the power of God. And and notice that when they say this, you're the Christ, the son of God, they're not bringing any new people to hear Jesus. Like this is different. If I go home and I, and I see my brother and I say, hey, you got to come hear this teaching because this guy's speaking the word of God. You got to hear it. This is great. That's very different than shouting it out when you're in the session. Right, So in this point, and when they do this, they're distracting people from hearing the word. So he rebukes them, and he didn't allow them to speak. Right, So flattery can be a demonic or an unclean kind of thing. And Jesus has a plan. He, he has this timing that he's working out. We see that when we get closer to the crucifixion. And in this point in his ministry, it's about the heart. It's about teachings. It's about training. It's about healing people and discipling people for three years. It's not about getting the the title at this point. So Satan in the temptation tries to co-opt Jesus's plan by getting Jesus off track. I think we just saw multiple examples where Satan's trying to co-opt Jesus's ministry by getting the people around him off track. 
But Satan is waiting for opportune times. That's what we saw in the last chapter. And this is exactly what he's doing here. He's using sickness. He's using pride. He's using loud, boisterous people. He's using demons themselves to annoy people and push them away from Jesus so that he can't heal them and they can't see change. He was, he was the Christ, and he laid his hands on everyone. But Jesus wanted to know people. He lays his hands on people. And he deals with people, not to wow them, not to speed up this thing. He doesn't want to have the, the parasitical ammunition that the, the fuddy-duddies need to crucify him. This isn't that time in the ministry. So Jesus does this all night. <laughs> the sun was setting, and he's healing them all night. Uh, he's serving, he's healing, he's saving. I don't bring up the chosen a lot, but they've got one ep- episode where all he's doing, the whole episode is serving people, and his disciples are over complaining, right? And that, and it's a great image of this, that Jesus didn't come to just get himself glorified. He came to help heal people. And I think we should be the same way. If we're supposed to be like Jesus, we're not here to have our names be recognized. We're not here to glorify ourselves. We're here to actually serve and heal people. And if our attention is wholeheartedly on the people around us, we're doing God's work the way God wants it done. You just got to take that flesh and, and kick it out. Verse 42, we'll wrap up. Now when it was day, he departed, he went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him. And he tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I've been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So here's another thing. What's another reaction to the ministry of Jesus? And that is people demanding more of Jesus than he was willing to give. This is the same thing in Nazareth, actually. They want more that he's willing to give. So the crowd seeks him. And he's going off to a deserting place. In the flesh, Jesus wants a break. He just needs to rest a little bit. And I think sometimes as we're doing our ministries, as you're going out and trying to love on people during the week, sometimes you get tired. You get exhausted. And then spiritually, the enemy can make us feel guilty because who are you to get tired if you're serving God? And that's how he burns out, not just pastors and teachers, that's how he burns out Christians saying, I just want to serve. If you, maybe your ministry's ma- making bracelets for people and handing them out, and you're just exhausted, and you're tired of making bracelets. And Jesus takes a break. He goes off to a deserted place. Those periods of refreshment are essential. For, we, we came to get rest in Christ. We didn't come to burn ourselves out in Christ. So I, this idea that the crowd seeks him and wants more, part of it's their appreciation But really, there's this idea they sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. They tried to stop his path. Do you see that? This too, they don't call it demonic, but it's the flesh wanting more from somebody than they're able to give. And Jesus wants to give. He loves them and he cares for them. Um, But it's interesting how famous people will see this all the time. There's no privacy for the famous in America. None. And they'll talk about this. They'll have interviews where, like, I never knew becoming a movie star would mean that my life was over and the movie star life was the only one that could exist because there's no space. So you get some of these people that are like, I'm moving to Oklahoma and I'm getting me a ranch of 500 acres where nobody can come get me. And if you got enough money, you can do that. For normal average people, getting away from ministry is tough to do sometimes. But we got this great passage where this is actually part of how Jesus creates a boundary for himself. 
right? And he's, I need to go preach over here too. I didn't come just for this town. I came for all of these towns. You ever see somebody in, in like a church where they like run up after the teaching and they get talking with the pastor and they won't let the pastor go? Right. I remember one pastor who kind of had like his bulldogs that would run interference and say, if somebody comes up and they want more than 15, 20 minutes after a service, I'm here to minister to everybody that showed up that wants ministry today. So I can't be dominated by one or two people. That too becomes a distraction from the ministry. It takes people away from what God's called them to do. So this, these interference people would come up and they'd literally put their body between them and say, hey, I need to talk to the pastor right now. And they'd hold the pastor away. And it was so that the ministry could happen and be spread to multiple people. But people get a little bit of love and they have a hole in their heart and they just want more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And they never end. And we got, so again, we have another story where Jesus has got a ministry and we've had demons and we've had people that will try to take him off of what God's called him to do. And I love the verse actually just says that. And this is where I kind of get this take on the chapter. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I've been sent. God has told Jesus what his purpose is. And in the flesh and in the human flesh, this is all we ever get. God's called us to a thing and we're here to do it. Don't burn yourself out. Don't let other people burn you out on that. Don't let people bring glory and give you titles when you're doing that. Don't be distracted from it. Don't, be, don't accept people that lie about your intent and what you're doing. You're not there to destroy. You're there to do what God's called you to do. And she got this whole chapter with different people reacting to Jesus in different ways. All of it started because he said what God told him to say when he read Isaiah. And he said, today this has all been fulfilled in your hearing. That started the fight. And now we've got friction coming from all these directions that Luke has. Really, you know, just this, this, I must preach. And that's exactly what he's been doing. He goes synagogue to synagogue teaching the word. The ministry is teaching, verses 14 and 15. In verses 1 through 13, there's a direct demonic attack, attacking the person in sin. Jesus' response to temptation is to quote the word of God. Do you see that? Then in 16 through 30, there's disbelief and wrath, nothing new under the sun. Jesus' response to that was to walk away. So quoting the word, walking away, in 31 through 37, he gets interruptions. Jesus rebukes them and kicks them out. That's a third reaction. Then in 38, 39, there's sickness. He rebukes it and kicks it out. Still on the third reaction. Then there's false praise in verses 40, 41. Jesus rebukes it and kicks it out. Okay, so we really got three reactions. Five different stories, three reactions. Then you get demanding and dominating people that want more in verses 42, 44. And I like this. Jesus doesn't rebuke that. When people want more Jesus, that's good. So he establishes a boundary, but I want to point out, he doesn't rebuke them. He just corrects them. People are like, oh, are you mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you. I'm just setting the boundaries. This is my limit. I know where my limit is. And I, I there's grace and there's mercy, and Luke ends on a story where Jesus is really graceful with these people. He doesn't end with rebuking. Like, we don't want to rebuke people when we do our work for God. That's not what our heart is it. But just this correction, and there's nothing wrong with wanting more Jesus, right? That's We should expect that from people that have needs. They need Jesus, and they're going to see it in you. They're going to demand more of you, because you got Jesus in you. And to set those boundaries and do it with grace is what Jesus does,
And we see a different reaction from Jesus based on the different kinds of distractions from the ministry that occur. And in this sense, I think people say, well, how do you react to this and that? Jesus, I think, is reacting in the Holy Spirit because we heard in the last chapter he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So in each situation, he's making judgment calls on how to react. He's got tools in his toolbox, quoting the word, walking away, rebuking, gracefully correcting. Those are great tools to have in your toolbox. When Jesus, somebody's trying to take you off your ministry, take you off your game, have boundaries for yourself. Know where the line is. Be willing to take a stand. Be willing to walk away, right? We don't always fight the battles. Be willing to quote the word of God in a situation to correct lies. Verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. You see how Luke wraps that up? He just kept doing his ministry. Nobody could stop him. He's moving in the power of God. He's dealt with all these distractions. Three years, he's teaching in the synagogues every week. Odds are, six days a week, he's doing carpentry and taking care of his parents. You notice these stories are all Sabbath or right after Sabbath, right? So he's doing these things where he's just going in and teaching every week. Um, we get the highlights here. I think it's important to note that you've got years of this kind of ministry. Now we know why people call him rabbi. Because he acted as a rabbi in these towns and would come in as a guest speaker. Um, next chapter, he's going to start discipling the people around him. He's going to start training in other people to do the ministry too. So this is the book of Luke, and this is where we're at. I hope that was a blessing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you um, for showing us what's what happened to you, Lord, and, and how you reacted to things as things we can model, we can learn from, we can grow. Lord, help us not to just hear it today, but to stick in our hearts. Help us to know uh, when to walk away, when to quote the word and have a discussion, Lord, when to rebuke, and when to have grace, and when to be kind in situations. Uh, Lord, most of all, help every person in this room to know what they've been called to do. And when you put things on our hearts, Lord, may we not hesitate to do them. May serving in the ministry be something we actively partake in and we do. And it's not just teaching the word. There's so many other parts of what we do as a body. Um, you told us to love one another. So, Lord, I think we all start there. And, Lord, help us to do that and not be distracted by it, not to take praise for it, not to look for attention, not to be a, a show or to please people. But because you've called us to something, we do it for your glory. We do it for your honor and we do it for your praise forever and ever. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.